0: If you've got your place in 1 Peter 2, we're going to read verses 9 through 12. Please stand in honor of God's Word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word and for how it how it defines us, how it shapes our identity, how it teaches us to see ourselves, to see others, more importantly, how to see you. And we thank you for uh, the revelation uh, of Jesus Christ to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, so, you know, the verse we're going to kind of zero in on here is verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You are God's people. And there's lots more actually that, that Peter has to say about who we are uh, in these verses. That's, uh, that's very, very helpful, incredibly encouraging. Uh, but before we, we look at some of those definitions, let, let's just consider who, who we were uh, before we look at who we are and uh, Peter is describing us as once we were not uh, a people um, and, and, you know, kind of fleshing that out, once we lived in darkness and once we had not received mercy. So, so what are the implications of that? Um, and some of you can remember that very, very, very viscerally, very experientially um, before you became a disciple of Jesus, uh, some of you have been walking with him your entire lives, and that 's you know not something that you remember so much uh, in, in your experience but but you have tastes of that like we, we all still have the sinful nature. Uh, but what does it mean to live in darkness? Um, you know just a quick story, ever since the end of October uh, our, our our house has been very, very bright, very very illuminated uh, actually it 's actually since the very end of October being Halloween. (laughs) Because Halloween, uh, Lydia, and I have her permission to share this, she spent uh, an evening with some buddies of hers and they were at a friend's house and, and one of them got the brilliant idea, hey, let's all watch a scary movie. It's Halloween, we'll watch a scary movie. And I'm not talking about just kind of a suspenseful movie, but like a legit scary movie, right? And Lydia's like, oh, I don't know. And she's just kind of doing, you know, her phone and just kind of like doing this, watching the movie. And it totally freaked her out. So ever since uh, October 31st, I have been turning off all the lights in the house that Lydia just continues to turn on. i like, she won't go anywhere in the house where it's dark at night. And so, like, I'm like, Lydia, why is the light in the bathroom of the basement on? Well, you know, just in case. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit there. But literally, I do go through, and, I, and I'm trying to be the good, dutiful dad, you know, cutting the electric bill, and Lydia's being the, the kind of a little bit, you know, scared of the dark. Uh, I'm 16-year-old turning on all the lights, and, and I get it. Like, light is safety. Light is security. Light gives us a sense of, uh, of orientation to our surroundings and it lets, reassures us that, you know, uh, there's nothing that's going to threaten us or harm us. But, but just more importantly, it just helps us identify what are the boundaries and what's my place? Do you ever think about how light gives you a sense of place? Light is le- like what helps us see uh, the, the beauty of the leaves on the tree, it helps us gauge uh, the distance between, you know, where we are and the top of that mountain or, you know, where we are and the depth of, of that ravine and, it, and, and without light, we wouldn't know where we are or who we are. And I'll think about a life without light, like in the spiritual category what does it mean to be in spiritual darkness? This is who we were before he called us out of darkness, before we had any sense of boundary or belonging, before we knew who we were, before we knew who others were, before we knew who God was. Like, have you ever been in cave darkness? Um, If you ever go into like grand caverns, at least once upon a time, uh, we were there years ago and and our guide through grand caverns, after we had gotten really far into the caverns, like we couldn't, no, no, no view of the entrance at all. And every, all the light that we have in, in the caves at this point is artificial light, you know, electric light. And the, the guide says, okay, I, I want to give you a sense of what cave darkness feels like. It's unlike any other kind of darkness. It's a, it's a particular variety of darkness that has that diviner cave Darkness, And when that tour guide turned off the lights, like the lights were gone. It's so dark. The cave darkness is, has this unique property. There's no ambient light whatsoever, which means you cannot see your hand in front of your face. There's nothing to orient you. Nothing to give you a sense of boundary or place or definition or security or, you know, identity. You're just one more ingredient in the darkness. So yeah, there's other senses that we have by God's grace so we can kind of get around uh, with, without sight and without light but just think how important light is and then consider for a moment, what is it like to be in spiritual darkness? That God has delivered us out of this condition where we had no sense of place. We had no sense of spiritual boundary, no sense of spiritual identity. We had no sense of who we are. We can't even see our spiritual hand in front of our face. We don't really know who we are spiritually. We don't know who others are in relation to God, and we don't know God because we have no light. And this is, this is our condition apart from the mercy of God coming to us and illuminating that darkness. That's the condition of those without the gospel, without Christ, without God in their life. And yet strangely, like people in spiritual darkness don't normally think of themselves as in darkness, do they? Those in spiritual darkness, I can remember my own, you know, before I was 18 and and the Lord got a hold of me, I remember, you know, thinking, I'm pretty good. I'm doing all right. I'm just, you know, from the Lord's perspective, I was in darkness. But from my perspective, you know, I felt enlightened. I had Thomas Jefferson on my side, you know, full-blown deist. God created everything, set it in motion, this cosmic clockmaker, and wound it up and then just went on permanent vacation, you know, and whatever. And I thought I had, you know, ultimate reality pretty figured out, you know, pretty enlightened. We even use that language, enlightened, right? Right. But those in in spiritual darkness can't perceive themselves truly. They can't perceive God accurately. They don't know what ultimate reality is. They don't have God's sense of what are spiritual boundaries. And that's a perilous place to be. That's how sin works. And so those in spiritual darkness actually need to be more like Lydia. Craving the light. Desperate for... For illumination, for safety, for security, for reality, for boundary, for you know, help, for mercy. right? Because you feel vulnerable and you know you, know you need something outside you to, to help define you. So that's the role of the light. And God comes to us in our darkness. He has mercy on us. We're getting ready to celebrate Advent. You'll hear more of these kinds of prophetic promises, but Peter, as you're going to hear a bunch of here in the next few minutes, borrows so heavily on uh, prophetic imagery, Old Testament imagery, like for instance, Isaiah 9, where God says that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. God gives us that light. Matthew Quotes Isaiah, quotes that passage right out of Isaiah, and then immediately goes on to show how Jesus came and began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And through repentance and because of God's mercy, you can have light. You can have boundary. You can have identity. You can have security. You can have blessing, right? That's what the light gives us. So those, um, you know, prior to us being God's people, once we were not God's people, we lived in darkness and we lived in misery. We needed mercy. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Who needs mercy? Well, the biblical, um, I'm sorry, the dictionary of biblical imagery uh, gives kind of a helpful orientation to, to what is mercy. Mercy is aid rendered to someone who is miserable or needy, right? Mercy has this quality about it that is drawn to somebody's lack. Like the thing that qualifies a mercy recipient isn't their qualification, it's actually their lack of, of any qualification. It's just their destitution, it's their emptiness that makes that, Person who's showing mercy want to respond and fill that emptiness. That's God's response to us. He sees us in our spiritual darkness or or our our condition of needing mercy, and and that can apply to all kinds of things, right? Like who needs mercy? The kinds of people that need mercy are the people who are guilty. They need clemency, they need mercy, they need pardon. The people who are poor, you know, they need to 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 have their bucket filled. Uh, those who are helpless. Those who are suffering, uh, those who are undeserving need mercy, right? Like mercy when it's deserved is no longer mercy, it's sort of an obligation. So by definition, mercy is something that's not deserved, it's given freely, it's given kindly, it's given with compassion to those who are needy and who can't help themselves, who are helpless and graceless, they need grace. We have a lot of words that overlap. You know, mercy and grace have a lot of overlap. We'll talk about the distinctions in a second. But, but think about what it means to be graceless, what it means to need mercy. Like we use the word grace or the root of the word grace in a lot of our, our, our English words, and, and it, it's all over the place. Like you think about the ungrateful. You think about the, the graceless. You think about the ungracious or the disgraceful, right? These are candidates for mercy. The persona non grata. The person that's not welcome. You know, that is the candidate uh, for mercy. So Peter's borrowing again from Old Testament imagery. He, he lifts an entire prophet Hosea out of the Old Testament and says, remember Hosea, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. He's referring to Hosea who was commissioned by God. Here's, you know. You know, we think of prophets as these Old Testament heroes, right? How about this as God's commission to you as his chosen prophet? I want you to go and I want you to marry a prostitute. Not just a woman who's going to be unfaithful. But I want you to marry a spouse who's going to hire herself out as a prostitute. And not only does his marriage become this living parable for Israel's unfaithfulness to God as her heavenly groom, like, right, the people had committed spiritual adultery, running after other gods and idols and so on. That language of a a wedding in heaven isn't just reserved for the New Testament, it has its roots in the Old Testament, where God's people are his bride. And so not only is, is, has Hosea's marriage to his wife Gomer become this parable of brokenheartedness, but even his kids are become living reminders to God's people of how once they had not received mercy and once they were not my people. Uh, Hosea chapter 1 verse 6 talks about how Gomer conceived their second child, or some commentators think this, is, this might not even be Hosea's children. And She conceived again, and she bore a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, "'Call her name Lo-Ruhamah,' which means no mercy.'" How would you like to have that for a name? No mercy. "'For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them.'" And then when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. Again, we don't know who the father is necessarily. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, Lo-Ami, for you are not my people. I am not your God. You know, so this is Israel running away from God, running after, you know, their, their lovers, spiritually speaking. But the story of Hosea is God's compassion and his mercy and his redemptive love. Like he loves Israel even in their unfaithfulness and woos them back to him. And so, Hosea's ark, you know, this family, this marriage, and the children has this, you know, beautiful uh, resolution where in chapter two, God says through Hosea, Say to your brothers, You are my people. And to your sisters, You have received mercy. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. And so that's how the gospel works. God gathers the unrepentant. God gives them faith and repentance. God restores them to himself and loves them and they love him in return. Um, So I'm gonna uh, quote Sam Storms. He was blogging for the Gospel Coalition and he writes that there are similar and undeniable relationship between grace and mercy. Uh, but grace is not the same as mercy. Because whereas grace is God's goodness toward sinners, mercy is God's goodness toward sufferers. And what, what Peter's honing in on here is God's mercy, not just his grace. God's grace comes to us, and it's undeserved, it's unmerited, it's beautiful, it's gracious, it's, you know, we, it inclines us toward gratitude, and hopefully we're thinking about this, that this week. But grace can happen in a way that that doesn't convey the same amount of emotion that mercy does. The end result is very much the same, you know, gifts and blessings that are poured onto those who are undeserving. But as as grace comes to, you know, maybe the guilty uh, who have sinned, mercy comes to maybe the, the suffering you know, but, but God's mercy extends to us even in our suffering, but, but not just in our suffering. God's mercy extends to us even in our sin, even because we're suffering because of our sins. We think of mercy sometimes in relation to, like, okay, we're going to help those who have been sinned against in some way or experiencing the effects of sin in some way, but we don't necessarily hold them responsible. Sometimes we do. But God's mercy comes to us even in our sinful suffering, the suffering because of our sins. His heart goes out to us. I mean, I don't want to do, make too much of, of, of words here. You know, we can quote in some cool Hebrew, right? Lo-ami and lo ruhamah. But, But there's a Greek word for compassion that overlaps with mercy. And, it, and it's a cool word. It's your splagna, like your guts. The, the Greeks would talk about emotions, with relation to mercy. Like your heart going out to somebody, your stomach like churning because you are so moved toward this person's need. And that is God's heart toward us. Once we had not received mercy, but now we are assured his heart moves toward us. Like his guts churn for us. There's emotion involved. It's personal. Now you are God's people. You are a chosen race, as verse 9 shows us, and it piles on. All these descriptions, all these definitions, uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this whole notion of a chosen race, right? A chosen people, people who God has selected um, can, can ring a little strange in our ears. But I want you to know this wouldn't be at all strange to Peter's audience. Uh, when they hear the word chosen, they go, oh yeah, we, we are in continuity with God's chosen people in the Old Testament. I'm... I'm some of you remember, I, I told this story before, so forgive me for being redundant for some of you, but I remember being in 10th grade in uh, Mrs. Crowley's English class, and we all had to give book reports. And so I'm, I'm there doing my, doing my thing on a book by an author named Kaim Potek called The Chosen. And it was a story of, of two Jewish boys in in the New York City uh, maybe turn of the century or something and and their friendship but it's a it's a strained friendship because one comes from a Hasidic background the other one comes from just a conservative background you know both families are you know sincere in in their in their faith in their Judaism, but one is like ultra ultra orthodox and the other is is a little more mainline and and I'm giving my book report, and I thought I was doing a pretty good job. And at the end of it, you know, any questions? And Mrs. Crowley, from her desk over here, I can still see it in my mind, just to my left. She she says, well, Essen, um, tell us about the title. Tell us about the title, of The Chosen, or whatever. And I'm just... You know, I, she she was such a kind teacher. I just remember her for her kindness. She, I know she thought she was just throwing me a meatball, just a, just a softball. Here, Essen, hit this one out of the park. Impress everybody. And instead, I'm standing there with my pants around my ankles, embarrassed to death in front of all my 10th grade friends because, I don't know, you know, and, um, and it was a little bit awkward. But the chosen, or come on, I didn't grow up in the church. So I had no idea. What she thought would be really self-evident is that that's just God's people. That's who they are. That's, that was God's people in the Old Testament. God had chosen them. He had elected them. He called them out of all the nations to be his treasured possession. Peter's borrowing all of that language. So whether it's the Old Testament chosen, or uh, some of you have been watching, you know, the new TV series, The Chosen, where it's just documenting like the Gospels and Jesus choosing uh, his disciples, right? Here's, here's Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and Matthew, and he comes to each of them and says, follow me. Follow me. And you see Jesus' intentionality and his and his purposefulness. It's not an accident. He didn't walk up to James and John and Peter and Andrew and, you know, everybody and by accident say, oh, how'd you end up behind me? I, I don't know. He invited them and he called them. And he tells us in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And we hear this language of like God choosing us and we hear language about mercy being something that... that that is intentional on behalf of the giver. Like The giver decides to show mercy, the giver decides to extend grace. That's never an accident, it's not random, it's a choice. So it's God's choice to make us his chosen people and I know that that kind of raises eyebrows, right? Like there's three fundamental responses to this whole language of God's choice. There's the person who thinks, well, of course God chose me. Why wouldn't he? Right? I mean, good for him. I always knew he had good judgment. God on his throne, pretty smart guy. Now he's got a good one on his team. You know. And we, go, and we look at that person and we go, uh, all right, that's too much. Um, and then there's sort of this option where you go, all right, I'm uncomfortable with the language of God choosing people. Like his intentionality, his election, things like that. Like that just kind of rubs my fur the wrong way. Maybe you can't even articulate why. It just feels a little bit too like much like favoritism, maybe. But can I just can I ask you what the alternative is? What's the alternative? to his gracious choice. What's the alternative to sovereign mercy? It can't be grace and it can't be mercy unless it's his choice. And if it's not his choice, then it's got to have something to do with me and You know, getting my act together and figuring out things and straightening up and you know living a little bit better than the rest of the people around me who are messing up and uh, but I'm kind of rising to the top and therefore God chooses me and therefore you know yeah good for him. You kind of end up back in that first category, or the reason why God chose you is because because of you because of your goodness, because of your you know law-keeping or your generosity or your piety or whatever, you know you fill in the blank and it, and it ends up making the, the gospel's not the gospel anymore. It's just laws and rules and commandments that you keep and then God's obliged to, you know, do something good for you. It's not a gift. That's a wage. It's not grace. It's legalism. So, the proper response to God's mercy, the proper response to God's gracious choice is thanksgiving and love. And I understand that there may be some question or like, All right, so, so, well, what about those, are, are there people that God you know, isn't going to choose that want that mercy and, you know, they're reaching out to him and he's saying no. And like, can I just reassure you that that's never the case? Like, I, there's, a, there's a mystery here between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. They cannot, like, if anybody tells you that they, that they can figure this out and it's, you know, easy, you just, just listen to me and, you know, I'll, I'll explain it all to you. They don't know what they're talking about. We are finite. We can't reconcile the fact that God is a sovereign king and he's a righteous judge. He shows mercy to whom he's going to show mercy to, and he holds us accountable for our decisions. How those work together, I don't know. It's part of the mystery of worshiping a God who's much, 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 much bigger than we are. But here's what I can promise you. On the authority of God's word, is that he will always show mercy to those who ask for it. He will not withhold his grace from those who are confessing their sins, if you're hung up on this, you know, God choosing us, he never withholds his mercy from those who ask. And he will never turn away somebody who is sorry for their sins. Someone who's turning to him in repentance and faith. Psalm 51 is a great example of this. Here's David praying, Lord, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me, thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. God is not going to turn away those who come to him, turning from sin, turning from, you know, the world to him. And that's, that's the mystery we got to live with. But that's part of the gospel. So Peter goes on to pile on all these, you know, descriptions of who we are uh, in our series so far. You know, we're kind of at the end of the, the You Are series, and we've looked at how Jesus is things like, you're the light of the world, and you're of more value than many sparrows. And then how Paul says, like, you're not under law, but under grace. And you're God's temple. You're not your own. You're the body of Christ. Well, here's Peter's, you know, he only has two letters in the New Testament. So he's going to kind of get, you know, catch up. And he says things like, you are, you know, God's people. You're, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Like all of these things are ways that we get our identity because we have the light of God's revelation shining. We know who we are, and we know what the boundaries are. We know what reality is. You're a chosen race. Um, We got our word generation from the word that's translated race there. We can trace our ancestry, our spiritual ancestry, back to Abraham. God chose Abraham, called him out, and said, you're going to be mine, and I'm going to make a whole family, a whole nation from you. You know, and in the Old Testament, people thought that was sort of this geopolitical thing. And while now we know it's more than that, everybody who believes that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is for their benefit to forgive our sins, to justify us and to reconcile us to God, we take our place in that family of faith. Paul says in Romans 4, therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, by mercy, right? And may, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law or you know, who are Jewish, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all who believe in God's mercy to us through Christ. So you're a chosen race. You're part of this lineage. You, know, you belong to this family, right? God's family. You're also a royal priesthood. Well, again, you've got the whole priesthood. The priests in the Old Testament... Among the 12 tribes of Israel, one tribe, the Levites, were appointed. You are the priests. Nobody else could be a priest. God chose the Levites out of all the other tribes and said, you're going, to be a, you're going to be the priests to the rest of the tribes. And to the world, for that matter, but to the rest of the tribes. And now, through faith in Christ, all of us become priests. Like, we have this privilege. We are a, a, a royal holy priesthood. And of all of the people you know, that God has chosen from all the tribes of the world, now we are this unique group of people whom he confers priesthood upon. What does a priest do? A priest intercedes between God and the world. And we do that when we pray. We do that when we share the good news of God's forgiveness. The priest confers God's forgiveness on the people. We do that when we tell our friends and family and neighbors and coworkers and strangers on the street, when we tell them God through Christ has offered forgiveness. On the virtue of the cross of Jesus, on the virtue of his empty tomb, I can promise God forgives the sins of those who repent and turn to him. That's a priestly declaration. You do that when you share your faith with your friends. You do that when you go on the mission field, when we support missionaries. We are acting as this holy, royal priesthood that God has chosen. You, you don't you know, nominate yourself. You don't just assume that for yourself. You have to be appointed and anointed and that is God's choice. And he says further, you're a holy nation, right? <sighs> holy means like special. Holy means set apart. Holy means, I'm not regarding this thing as ordinary anymore. It's special. I'm going to set it up here on the the shelf or the mantle because it's, it's important. It's now an heirloom. It's kind of like this legacy thing. And when you apply that concept to a person, that person is special now. They're not ordinary. They're called out of the world. They're taken out and they have a unique purpose. And a holy nation means that we are God's holy people. The church is God's new chosen nation made up of sanctified, selected people from every nation. You see God's choice. He keeps choosing. He keeps showing the initiative. He keeps pursuing us. He keeps doing this for us because we are a people for his own possession. Do you know who you are? Does the light of the gospel orient you to reality? Can you see your hand in front of your face? Do you know that that hand is precious to God? You are His possession. Like, even that language kind of, I don't know about being somebody's possession, but relish in that. Who Who would you be unless you belong to somebody else? Everybody in this room, we're we're somebody's possession. You're somebody's spouse. You're somebody's son or somebody's daughter. Maybe you're somebody's parent. Maybe you're somebody's friend. But you belong to people. There's people in this world that say about you, you are my, and then fill in the blank. My is a language of, of ownership, of possession. Yeah, okay, we're, we don't want to go into the dark places of that. But no, we're just talking about the security and the comfort of belonging to another. And now think about the misery and the, just the destitution of having nobody to say, you are my beloved. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are my sibling. You are my friend. And the gospel dares to tell us the truth that through Jesus, you are God's treasured possession. That because of Jesus, who endured darkness, who couldn't see his hand in front of his face because it was nailed to a cross, and who experienced dispossession, God dispossessed him. You are not mine anymore. You are not my people. You do not receive mercy. He endured that for us so that that light would never go out for you. So that you would never not know his mercy and being his treasured possession like he longs for you. He knows about you. You're not just a a blip fleeting across his radar. Oh, there's Essen. Yeah, he's still breathing. Yeah, God knows everything. Not in that sense, but that you are always on his heart as a treasured possession would be. Whatever you treasure, you kind of dwell on. You kind of think about a lot. You don't lose sight of that. So many of us really struggle with this. Who are you? Yeah, it's okay to have your identity tied to your job or to your, you know, your your university or your favorite sports team or whatever you can you can say you're a Hokey or a Duke or a you know a Cavalier, you can say you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. You can say you're a this or a that. But at the end of the day, what defines you? What's the brightest light that gives you a sense of boundary and identity? It's got to be the gospel. That's got to be what cha- changes us and shapes us. I like what. Uh, Clive Kilby, uh, John Piper was quoting this in his book, The Pleasures of God. He says, at least once every day, I shall look steadily up at the sky and remember that I, a consciousness with a conscience, am on a planet traveling in space with wonderfully mysterious things above and about me. Like he gets it. I am a consciousness with a conscience. I have a conscience and I think and I'm aware. And I'm a consciousness that God is aware of all the time. Because why? Because I am his treasured possession. Not because I hope so, not because I'm aspiring to be, but because the gospel says so. You're his treasured possession. And if we're his treasured possession, if we're going to belong to God, then that means that we don't belong to the world anymore. We've been pulled out of the world, chosen, right? Yeah, we still are in the world, but we're not of the world. We can't have it both ways, which means what you, um, who you are and, and who you belong to in the most fundamental sense, that is going to define and shape our thoughts, our words, our decisions, our actions. And Peter, just to wrap up, he looks in verses 11 and 12, he's saying, look, don't live like the world does. You are sojourners and exiles. You're to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, and you're to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Who defines you? What defines you? Look I'll, you know need to be more like Lydia, longing for that light, longing for that safety and that security. Uh, Jesus described it this way. He said, look, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that? That's the way the world you know, does goodness. Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those to whom, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, you know, with interest. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful. Even as your Father is merciful. In light of the mercy that God has shown us, live lives of such mercy, of such forgiveness, of such patience, of such compassion, that the world looks on it and it doesn't understand it. And because it doesn't understand it, it has no choice but to vilify it. Somehow that's wrong. You shouldn't be that forgiving. You shouldn't be that merciful. You need to look out for yourself. You're making us look bad. How dare you? What if the church looked like that? People would get a much clearer picture of the mercy of God that has been shown to us through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. We can't give you enough thanks for the mercy that you've shown us in Jesus, for the grace that has come to us uh, because of your pursuit of us, because of your initiative, uh, your, your grace shown toward those who don't deserve it. So we just pray that you would show us more and more the reality of the light that defines us, the light of this gospel that's called us out of darkness, and that you would help us to leave the darkness, that we would live as sojourners and exiles, showing the world more of the light of your mercy, of your forgiveness, of your grace, and your kindness. Please make us more and more those kinds of people.